Hello and welcome to podcast number 37. My name's Jay McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Claire O'Neill. If you haven't yet had a chance, please do go and take a listen. So I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our guest for this evening, Julie McCrossin, who's going to be discussing her experience of having cancer and the amazing work that she does to promote health, her ongoing support for cancer patients, and also healthcare professions involved in providing oncology care. So Julie, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on our little podcast. Oh, uh, thank you for having me all the way from, I'm in Adelaide in uh, South Australia, right in the bottom of the earth, and just uh, so uh, uh, admiring of the work that you're both doing to raise the profile of radiation therapy and what it can do for patients. Oh, thank you. So Julie, for anyone who doesn't know you, do you want to start by kind of introducing yourself? Oh, no, of course. So my name's Julie McCrossan, and uh, 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 in 20. 20- 13, I was diagnosed with stage 4 oropharyngeal cancer, which means tonsils, tongue and throat, and it was uh, caused by the human papillomavirus, the HPV virus. And I was uh, um, extraordinarily shocked by this experience because I hadn't drunk alcohol uh, since 1979, which sounds extraordinary, but I'd been a problem drinker as a young woman, and I had gave up the grog, as we call it in Australia, <laughs> for life, hopefully. And uh, and also I hadn't smoked since the very, very early 80s. And I didn't know that there were other causes of, um, of throat cancer. So, uh, And I was treated with 33 sessions of radiation therapy and weekly chemo. So that's my sort of core clinical background, uh, for, for, you know, because obviously that's why I'm here. And my background is primarily as a radio broadcaster, but also a television presenter here in Australia, uh, mainly in our equivalent of the BBC, but I have also worked in a commercial environment. And I've been retired now uh, for some time, I'm 67, um, but I still do quite a lot of uh, what you're doing uh, via Zoom and uh, and podcasts and so on, because with this dreadful COVID pandemic, um, even though I've moved to South Australia, being a nana, uh, to my stepdaughter's first child is uh, the big part of my life. Uh, even though I, I'm in South Australia, because of Zoom and all the other platforms, I've been able to continue working part time. Uh, so that's me in a nutshell. Now, oh, Julie, I love that you promote yourself as a nana. And I have to say on your Twitter account, that's the first thing that pops up. So anyone who wants to go and check Julie out on, on Twitter, it's amazing. I hope all grandparents are as passionate about their their duty as a, as a grandparent. Honestly, I think they are. I actually think they are. And obviously, I'm so uh, grateful. It's nine years since my treatment. I'm so grateful to be alive to meet a grandchild. I mean, that is a, a gratitude to my multidisciplinary team, including what we call radiation therapists, you call therapeutic radiographers. You know, seriously, I, 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 you never take life for granted when you've uh, been on a LINAC, a linear accelerator, the radiation machine. Julie, it's obvious to the audience, anyone listening, you're using lots of terminologies about radiotherapy. How do you know so much? Oh, well, I, you know, I think the answer is that... When I was lying on the machine, and there will be people obviously listening who don't know about it, but you go into, when you're being treated with radiation therapy, you're, you're, you're taken into a big room they call a bunker, and there's a, 
a big machine. There's all different machines, but it was a big machine. And you lie down on what they call a bed, but it's actually not soft. It's hard. And and in my case, uh, because I had to have radiation to the head and neck area, I had to wear what's called an immobilisation mask. I prefer to call it a safety mask because I think it's what it is and it's also less threatening to the to the patient. But you wear this tight-fitting mask they've made for you and you literally click down and restrained by the head. And and that was a very, very tough experience for me, even though it I understood it was necessary for my safety. It, it's so the beam hits the tumour and kills the cancer and doesn't hit healthy tissue like spinal cord or brain or whatever else. So you can see I, I now understand it all, but when I was lying there the first few times, I didn't understand it all and I hadn't been prepared with good education beforehand and that's something I'd love to talk to your audience about in order to help prevent it happening to another patient that's become my passion, pre-treatment education for patients and family. But just going back to that first few times, I, I lay there I had 20 minutes alone in the bunker while the machine treated me. I think it would be briefer now that technology develops all the time, but mine was 20 minutes alone in the bunker. And I promised myself, if you survive this, um, do what you can to improve the experience for my fellow patients. And isn't it the case, guys? I mean, you'd know better than me. That is a very common reaction for patients. And, and, and some patients uh, cope with it by you know, hopefully recovery, all that checking that you in our country goes up till five years and then they never want to think about it again. But then there's another big cohort of patients for whom one of the ways of coping with the experience is to become active, even in a, it may be in a, a small local community support group uh, uh, or it might be fundraising or in my case, it's become a huge amount of online advocacy. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, Joe and Naaman, I was always that kind of person. You know, I was a women's liber in, in the 70s and a gay liberation person because I'm a gay woman. So I, I'm naturally a kind of activist character. So I don't think it's surprising that my response to cancer has to become an advocate. I was going to ask, Julie, I mean, it, it sounds like you're very passionate about what you do. I think Joe and I, we went through, obviously, your pages online, some of the videos that you've done within the Indigenous population in Australia, the LGBTQ+. I mean, you're very passionate about helping others, which is obviously why Joe and I got into the profession as well. You were talking about um, not being that prepared for day one or day two of wearing a mask, which is obviously very tight. Sometimes as well, if patients are having chemotherapy, the mask can be even tighter because of the fluid retention post-chemotherapy. That's something else that you aren't always told about that I've heard from patients. But um, how how did you manage after the first couple of days? Look, I'd, I'd love to tell you that. And I'll just say, first of all, uh, for your audience, I'm a head and neck cancer patient. And so that there's a particular issue there for us around the mask and why it needs to be so tight in the beginning because when you have radiation to the throat area, um, I lost slowly but surely over the uh, 33 consecutive days of treatment, I lost speech altogether and I lost swallowing almost altogether. And so uh, what happens when you lose swallowing, despite the best efforts of our multidisciplinary team, which includes a dietitian, and we're given liquid food, um, I was lucky enough to keep drinking 
uh, my liquid food throughout my treatment. Uh, sometimes people have to have nasogastric feeding, a tube put down their nose. Um, other places in Australia, you automatically get what's called a peg tube, which is the surgical insertion of a feeding tube into your stomach. And then you, through a kind of, I don't know what the right word is, guys, but you push liquid food through the tube into your tummy. And I, I very much didn't want, want tube feeding. And I was lucky enough to be in a team. Uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney was where I was treated. Um, I was lucky enough to be in a team where we were not required to have tube feeding. And I'm grateful for that. Um, but the, my point is that I lost 20 kilograms in six weeks and that's not an uncommon level of weight loss. So the mask has to be tight so that if you literally get thinner in the head uh, uh, during the course of your treatment, you're still firmly held still. But look, uh, Naaman and Joe, the truth is I did not get prepared before my mask treatment. And um, I, I want to say before I explain what happened to me that I have subsequently worked with the radiation therapists in my team at my cancer centre uh, to uh, be filmed having a, a, a new mask made uh, so that I could create a little videos for patient and family education. Um, I was then interviewed in my bunker uh, by a radiation oncologist who, who was an advocate, not my actual treating doctor. But in the room while that interview was done, or while I was sitting literally on my uh, LINAC bed, my radiation therapy machine bed, holding my new mask that I just had made, um, while I was having that interview done, there were eight radiation therapists behind me from that unit. So they became very involved in improving patient education before uh, first treatment for head and neck cancer patients for the mask. So this isn't a complaint, this is a story. But what happened in my particular situation was that nobody explained to me, nobody at all explained to me what the mask was going to be used for. I'd had it made, obviously, but I just, it, you know, it was like being in an, issue, an episode of Doctor Who. That's what I always say. Uh, you know, um, I have to explain to people, I had the only symptoms of cancer that I had were uh, two little lumps on my neck, a persistent sore throat and I wasn't sick, and a, a, a earache that was like a stick jammed in my ear. And I'd gone repeatedly to my general practitioner um, and I'd been treated for as if I had an allergy or an infection with antibiotics, but I was never referred to an ear, nose and throat doctor to be uh, formally assessed. Uh, and in fact, I was never referred. And I can explain to you later, if you wish, how I managed to get into treatment. But um, the point of this is that, actually, I can't remember why I told you that, but I'll just proceed. I'll go back to my pre-education. Oh, well, I'll, let me put it this way. I wrote a personal letter to an ear, nose and throat surgeon that I'd previously had contact with. He saw me immediately when I described my symptoms and he put a, a, a little bit of local anaesthesia in my nose and a tube down my nose with a little camera on it and he immediately saw that this area, my uh, tonsils, tongue and throat, were full of tumours. But my GP had not been able to see them because she looked into my mouth but they were too deep to see. That was my point in saying it. And I was completely healthy. I felt healthy. In fact, I'd done a 30-kilometre marathon walk only a matter of a week prior to my diagnosis, so I felt healthy. 
But in fact, the two little lumps on my neck were what are called metastases. They were secondaries. I was already stage four. And as I said to my radiation oncologist when he told me I was stage four, I said, how many stages are there? Because I was that ignorant. And he said four. And I had a little sense that I was in a little bit of trouble at that psychological moment. Um, but anyway, I was put into treatment very quickly. And that may be a factor in why I didn't get pre treatment education. Uh, um, later I asked why on earth didn't someone explain this to me and everybody thought someone else had. So one key message for me for your cancer team members listening is make sure you have a, a clear, reliable system, job description and allocation of the pre-education to patient and family so it's not missed in the hurry to get us into treatment. I know that must sound obvious, but that you know, it's just such an important message. Um, so uh, my experience for the first four sessions was I could only describe it as genuinely traumatic. Um, I, when I was clicked down the first time, so I walk in, I lay down. They're busy, the radiation therapist or therapeutic radiographers, as you would know, are very busy getting me into a very precise position. There's a whole lot of people waiting outside in the waiting room. <laughs> you know, the machine is under pressure. And they clicked me down and I was restrained firmly by the head. I immediately panicked. I went red in the face, sweat poured off me. And I said, take it off me, because it was on so tight. I couldn't even speak properly. I said, take it off me. And they whipped it off. And then I just thought, oh, my God, I've had a stage four cancer diagnosis. I'd been told that if I had surgery, it would have had to go through the side of my neck and I may have lost speaking and swallowing for life. And uh, I, I felt that this was my my chance, my a chance at life. And also I was so aware there were so many people waiting outside. I didn't want to keep everybody waiting. So I just thought, suck it up. And I said, put it back on. And um, I got through four sessions and I did ask for help, Naaman and Joe. And again, this is another part that I don't understand. I said, can you talk to me while I'm in there? Can you tell me every uh, five minutes? Okay, Julie, because, you know, for people who don't know, the radiographer, the therapeutic radiographers, the radiation therapists can see you and they can hear you. And they say, if you're in trouble, raise your hand and we'll come in and get you. But they can't be in the room because you're hitting me with radiation. So I did say, could you tell me every five minutes through the microphone? And the, one day the microphone didn't work. Another time they forgot because your role is complicated. You are also delivering a curative and uh, very precise radiation. You've got a lot to do. That's right, Joe and Naaman, isn't it? It, you, it you've got is, a lot to do. but, but I, would, I would hate to think of a patient not having that verbal support if they required it. Um, but it's so important. It's interesting, isn't it? Just that a lot, actually, from practice, you don't see a lot of people using the intercom. And actually, it's such a valuable way to be able to support your patients. Honestly, Joe, uh, uh, I guess it's, that's why I'm so grateful you're interviewing me. Because remember, I was a radio broadcaster on ABC or like your BBC for over 20 years. So I was totally used to being in a box, looking through glass... <laughs> And other people in a box yeah. who spoke to me through headphones, who spoke to me. So I thought it would be the easiest thing in the world for them to reassure me because I I was really panicking. 
I'm very aware of the, the shortness of time. So I'll simply say after my fourth treatment, after asking for help and not getting it, I went, what, what a lot of patients will do, you can probably guess, I went to the nurse and I, and I just said, oh my God, I can't go in there again. And, you know, I'm absolutely panicking. And um, she said, oh, Julie, for goodness sake, why didn't you speak up earlier? A lot of patients have to be drugged out of their minds to cope with head and neck cancer. <laughs> it was very colloquial, <laughs> right? For the fifth and all subsequent treatments, I was given just just 2.5 milligrams of Valium. Like that's hardly anything, mild sedation. I got four songs by Simply Red <laughs> that were almost exactly the duration of my treatment. Uh, so the therapeutic radiographers would turn it on as they left the room because, as you can imagine, you can't see a clock. You don't know how long it's taking. And 20 minutes restrained by the head when you're anxious is not an, is a long time. Julie, can I ask, um, do you still like Simply Red? Look, people have asked me that and I, I haven't played it to see if I get a post-traumatic trigger. Uh, but, um, look, to be honest with you, they saved my life. Uh, it... Um, you know what I as I want to just reassure because there could be people listening to this who are about to have radiation therapy and are about to have head and neck treatment and I'm always aware of that and I want to say very clearly to you that while there is research and there hasn't been enough research into the psychological impact of the mask what they call mask anxiety but we have done some here in Australia and the the research indicates that up to 50% of head and neck cancer patients, and of course, child patients with brain cancer, adult patients with brain cancer wear the mask. It's not just head and neck cancer radiation therapy patients who wear it, but that, that up to 50% of patients uh, experience clinically significant anxiety while wearing it. So it is an area that requires more systematic attention by cancer teams, but as you heard, it's 50%. So I have personally spoken to people who had the mask who were not bothered by it, who even fell asleep during their treatment. And so what my core message is, is one, to the cancer teams, have reliable pre-education, visual education. Ideally, you take us in and show us the bunker and the mask and explain it. Otherwise, have a video or a picture book or my big passion is a little Lego model of a Linac with a little patient on it and a little itty-bitty mask, and that these exist, that you have in the waiting room. Because it isn't just the patient who needs to know about all this. The family or carers do, because my treatment is outpatient treatment. So that very emotionally traumatised Julie, who came out of her first session, hid in the toilets and sobbed my guts out, because I thought my God, how am I going to handle this for another 32 sessions? But I didn't want to show my partner, Melissa Gibson, who was waiting outside, how upset I was because she was fearful of losing her partner. You know, we've been together for 25 years. She was frightened. We were raising children together with their dad. Um, so I hid and I haven't cried since. I I've literally stopped crying. Now, that's obviously a traumatic response. I've seen a, a, a proper... Uh, oncology psychologist and I've seen a psychiatrist and as you can see I'm functional <laughs> she, she laughs dryly but um but uh, you know I've had a traumatic experience and uh, so the but the reason we need to tell the family is that they need to 
support us. And if they don't know what goes on when we go into that bunker, how can they empathise and, and support us? Uh, and so that's why I think visual education, a little model, or maybe a picture book in the waiting room, just with pictures, because you know we have multicultural people, uh, we have people with limited literacy. Um, and just for me, I'm a multi-uni graduate, but the minute you told me I had stage four cancer, I lost at least 50% of my cognitive capacity. I became like a child who needed to be told things simply and I needed to be cared for. And uh, so the good news is that for the remaining sessions, um, I was I was fine. And the radiation therapists were incredibly apologetic. Uh, and everyone just said, oh, we thought the doctor told you. We thought the nurse told you. Um, what do you think about my story, guys? Seriously, could that happen in the United Kingdom? Yeah, I can definitely see how your experiences um, have kind of helped shape the curriculum for pre-registration students. So I know what a lot of the higher education institutes that teach therapeutic radiographers do now is ensure that simulation is heavily embedded and that essentially that is promoting the patient experience um, and making students and, and those who are going into healthcare professions really think about what is important from a patient perspective. So what we typically will do is get all our first year students to have one of the immobilization head shells made and they would each do that within a group of four or five of them and they would get to lie on a hard radiotherapy couch and essentially learn how to make a head shell but also experience what it's like to have one made and you'll get some students who absolutely relish the opportunity and are like, this is amazing. I get to lie down in one of the seminars and enjoy myself. And I've got people around me who are just pampering me by putting something on my face. And actually, what's really interesting is seeing how some of the students respond to even the thought of having a head shell made. So it isn't even necessarily... Um, having it and being in that process it's just the thought and you can see other students responding to their peers who are already exhibiting signs of anxiety and we did have some students who were shaking crying really quite emotive about the whole um the whole shell making the process of it being out of control and it was really interesting the impact that they had on each other in being able to reassure them, communicate effectively, and I think that's absolutely fundamental, which is obviously what you've highlighted as well, Julie. And if I could explain that word shell, that's another word for the mask. And and that feeling of the facial, because each patient has their own particular personal mask, before you have your radiation therapy, you go into the cancer centre and they lay you down and they they put this flat, soft uh, uh, a thing <laughs> and, and they pull it down tight over you and that then, uh, then they pat you like mad and cool it and it freeze frames, as it were. It's, it sets into a rigid mask and that's, that's the facial th experience. And, you know, just so you know how extraordinary my experience was, the first time that was done, again, nobody explained what was happening. Everyone seemed to be in a terrible rush. This is relevant because because of COVID, you've got such a shocking backlog of treatment. 
I really feel for the cancer teams of Europe and the United Kingdom and other parts of the world watching this because the backlog you're going to face. So there's going to be a lot of hurrying. There's going to inevitably be corner cutting. And my story is an example of corner cutting to get me into treatment fast. So I was taken to a room, laid down, and two people rushed in because they were doing it in their lunch break as a favour favor to the doctor. Um, you know, this is just a real-life story from a hospital, okay? And they, they, I, suddenly I had this warm... They, I closed my eyes, which became my key technique for coping with cancer treatment, just close your eyes, right? But anyway, and they pulled this thing down and they patted me and, and I'm just thinking, what on earth is going on? And I remember thinking, I must be able to breathe through this because they're trying to save my life, not suffocate me. So that tells you they hadn't explained what was going to happen. And I remember vividly when they finally pulled it off, and again, it's all like a dream sequence to me, but it would have been a while, wouldn't it, for it to set. But they pulled it off and there was this lovely young woman. She was a young Greek woman. I just remember her, her nationality. And, and I said, who, these are literally my words because I was in an episode of Doctor Who. That's how I was coping. And I said, who are you and what is your skill? And she laughed. I used to be a comedian and humour is a coping mechanism, right? And she laughed and she said, I'm a radiation therapist, you know, and, uh, you know, we're going to treat you. And, and um, that was the first time I heard the word radiation therapist. Um, so, I, you know, what's my message again? When you're under terrible pressure, and I know you are, try to remember to tell us the key things and be kind. You mentioned, Joe holding hands. And, you know, after I went to the nurse so des desperate, for the next four sessions, she held my hand while the radiation therapist clicked me in. Um, and they did speak to me through that microphone. I urge you to do that oral reassurance. I have become obsessed with pre-education and up at St James Hospital in Leeds, uh, you, you, some of your UK people will know that, I saw on the internet, one, that they had built a scale model of their of their LINAC, their radiation machine, and it looks exactly like their LINAC and they put Barbie and Ken on it and you can press a button and it actually acts like a LINAC and they use it for their paediatric or child and young adult patients and what they call the anxious head and neck patients uh, or anxious patients because Barbie's got a tiny little mask. And I say to you, who isn't anxious in this? Show it to everybody, uh, particularly if you don't have a proper assessment tool to assess us for anxiety beforehand, and most people don't. So I, th I say show it universally because you see how confident I seem? How would anyone have guessed how traumatised I was going to be? By the way, I travelled to Leeds from the bottom of the world. I got a tour of their centre. I took video interviews with that LINAC. I'd love to send you the link, that little model. And I've shared that. I've also made videos of my story, which I'll share with you. Over 20,000 people have looked at the video of me having my mask made. So I've tried to react to this with constructive, proactive advocacy, the development of education materials, the promotion of very good work like what is happening up at St James Hospital, um, 
So I, it is, and I do it in partnership with doctors and multidisciplinary team members. I've, I've done work with radiation therapists and with nurses and with radiation oncologists and, and also with uh, speech pathologists who are crucial for us recovering speech with dieticians. Um, you know, for any patients who are listening, try to find a cancer centre where they do a lot of your kind of cancer, and that's called high volume, and they have a multidisciplinary team because it isn't just the doctors or the radiation or therapeutic radiographers, is it? It's the, to get someone like me to be alive, speaking, swallowing, eating, working and paying tax with teeth, because that's another issue for head and neck, it takes a team. It takes a team. But, you know, here's to you, Naaman and Joe, because you're doing what I try to do, isn't it? You're partnering with patients and other clinicians and family to spread information. And, you know, I really thank you for it. You've touched on quite a few very good points there. Um, so I think the interpersonal skills bit is obviously very important. Um, it isn't easy and I think sometimes there can be some embarrassment. Um, I think speaking from experience as a student, if a patient wanted to be talked to down the mic, usually you know maybe to build confidence let's put it that way or character building however you want to say it um as a student you're always been told okay well could you speak to the patient down the mic so that actually the two radiographers who are treating they can continue with the imaging with the checks etc so you know you're not just a spare part you're helping but that can be quite challenging i think and i think so i think some of the embarrassment for me when i was a student was well i didn't know what to say um you know, if you're a first year, second year, third year student, it could be that you're being asked to speak to maybe on a day one. So as you've said, an anxious or a worried head and neck patient, you don't know them. You might not be mature enough, depending on, you know, where you are in life, etc. Um, I think the first few ones that I did, I really, I just didn't know what to say. And then eventually your confidence builds. And actually, once you get to know the patients beforehand, so if you, as you said, you do like a, what's called a first day chat. So prior to their first treatment, they'll be taken into a side room to give consent speak to a radiographer, go through, you know, what to expect for the day, what to expect for the rest of um, the treatment, side effects, etc. who you're going to meet. But once you get to know the patients, and say, Julie, you were my patient, and I got to know a few facts about you, then down the microphone, if I knew you wanted to talk, I could have Google open, and something I've done is talk about dogs or dog facts. It doesn't have to be that complicated either. It could just be, okay, Julie, the machine is just going to move around you while we take an x-ray image, or... Okay, Julie, scan is done. We're just going to call out some numbers out to each other um, just for some safety checks. So we'll be a bit quiet for 30 seconds and then I'll let you know when we're starting. So something like that as well, I think probably works. That's something I've done. Um, I think this starts from when you're a student. So you can kind of embed that experience and knowledge and then overcome the embarrassment and nerves. Um, I think it took a lot for me to overcome it. But once you're there, you're there, I think. Um, this will take you kind of into being a qualified member of staff as well. Um, and then you can role model this patient care with other students, staff, anyone else, really. Um, you know, I've read parts of a patient's book down the microphone to them before. Um, you're definitely right, though, Julie, that not everyone will want to do this for their patients. It's something Joe and I will always bang on about, though. You know, patient experience and patient voice is so important. Patients are the business at the end of the day for us. It's why we got into the job. Um, you know, we should be trying to give 110% to every patient, despite the time pressures or embarrassment. And obviously, that's my opinion. And I will always stand by that. Patients, you know, they always remember your actions. Um, this could be one of the toughest parts of the patient's lives. And 
you know, we, we just need to care for them as best possible. And if that means using a microphone to just use your voice, um, I, I think that needs to be done. Damon, could I could I just quickly respond so I of course remember what I want to say because I've I had a lot of cisplatin was my chemotherapy yep. and it does have a long term impact on the memory so I still have cognitive function but I have memory problems. What's critical for me as I listen to you is number one we need to be as concerned about the emotional mental health well being of the cancer patient as physical recovery. Can I repeat that? We need to be as concerned about the mental health, the psychological health of the patient as much as being alive. And I really mean that because I know a lot of patients who've survived and thank you for keeping us alive, but you can have very serious distress during and after treatment. And so it shouldn't just be a student. It should be built into the system that this is a core part, the emotional support of the patient. Secondly, it needs to be the first few sessions most importantly because that's when we're having the shock of this new experience and most of us will adjust and manage it. But the first few is when we can have serious panic attacks when we're physically restrained. And that is, I just can't tell you what that did to me and I am a brave and courageous person in my normal life. I just want to say that to you. And I've met... I've met strong men you know head and neck cancer two-thirds of the patients are men a lot of them are working class men because in the past it's been heavy drinking and smoking now we have this new human papillomas from hpv related to oral sex um and, and we are more middle class people like me are coming in but a lot of the it's a mainly a man's cancer and they have trouble asking for emotional help and as to what to say think of it as a friend we're here, Jewel. What would you say if it was your mate, is what I'd say, or your sister or your brother? Yeah. As simple as that. We're here for you. We're here. We're still here. Looking good. Like if it was your child, it, because I think we are a bit childlike. Looking good. It's all going well. I'm just, because I know you've got radiographers listening. Let me give you words. It's all going well. Looking good. Yeah. Very good, Julie. Yeah. You're doing very well, Julie. Well done, Julie. Good work, all well. Do that every. Uh, you, it'll depend on the duration of treatment, but at least two or three times. Um, I cannot tell you. You're not alone in there. We're here. We can see you. It's okay. Just like you would if you had a, a teenage, maybe a thirteen-year-old daughter or son. Think of family, and. I know people get embarrassed talking into a microphone. You've overcome it because you're podcasting. <laughs> but put it in perspective. Someone in there has just had a life-threatening diagnosis and now they're having the most bizarre experience of their life. And the evidence is up to 50%, if it's head and neck, are experiencing a clinically significant level of anxiety. You can't wait. And the final thing I'd say, and you can answer this name and Joe, it might be different where you are, but in my 33 sessions, I didn't have the same therapeutic radiographers every time. There were rosters. I was on, depending on the roster each day, different times. I had different people. So they can't all know Julie or your story. They don't have time to consult your notes. They have to give generic, warm, friendly, professional support. Does that make sense, Guy? Of course it does. And I think the interpersonal skills side is 
you know active listening everything even if you meet someone new i think our professions wherever you are in the world we are very good at kind of bouncing off and reassuring patients and you know it's not nice to hear that your experience in the pre-treatment side of where they're in a bit of a rush so obviously you know when i was a student and for demos and videos that i was involved in i've had quite a few head and neck masks made and actually one of my practice educators she taught me very well at, uh, when i was a student that no matter what you're doing you know whether the patient got their eyes open and they're staring at you or they're closed with a head and neck mask you need to tell them okay julie i'm just going to put my hand just on your left arm so you don't make them flinch but even that tiny little bit has really really it revolutionized how i speak to patients that as you said it's about communication um any little thing that you do especially for someone who's a head and neck mask who might be clenching and really worried about what's going on if i suddenly touch you you're going to flinch and get even more worried because you can't see um i think those little things are something i was i was taught very well say name and something i wanted to mention to you and joe and to everyone listening is uh, i've heard that the uh, uh, the, uh, the relevant authority in europe has just declared radiation therapy or therapeutic radiography to be a profession and they've uh, listed on their website i i know it as esco and i'm sorry i don't remember what it stands for but they've listed the key skills and i think only number three it talks about the and I can't remember their formal words, but it's basically about your relationship with the patient, your constructive, supportive relationship with the patient. And I guess if I could just emphasise my point, it, I actually think that relationship is as important as the radiation. Do I really think that? Would I rather be traumatised and alive? Yeah, I probably would. I would rather be traumatised and alive, but I'd love to not be traumatised. And... And uh, can I say, it, it doesn't take more time. I'm not talking about, because I know time is of the essence, particularly if, like in Australia, you're in the private sector. We have a big private sector here as well as a public sector. And possibly at times uh, there may be more pressure on you in a private setting. I don't know. I think there will probably be many public settings where there's great pressure. But the point I want to make is this. You can tell as a patient very quickly who's kind. It isn't a lot of words. It's, it's, it's eye contact. It's a smile. It's a, it's a, may I touch you? I want to reassure you we're here, we're for you. It, it's, it doesn't take long. You tell very quickly. I would say to people listening, if you've ever had a sick, someone you love who's sick in hospital, and you visit them in hospital and the, and the patient wants help from a nurse and you've got to go out onto the ward and find a nurse to help you, you can tell almost instantly the nurses who you know are going to pause and help you <laughs> and those who will be too busy and won't. You know, when you really need human support, it's as if we have a capacity to sense who is kind and caring. I really believe that. And so very quickly, I... In order, I've been now filmed having other masks made in order to create these videos, and I haven't felt any stress at all. I'm not claustrophobic. I was in a very particular odd situation, and I didn't know what was happening, and I'd had a life-threatening diagnosis. But anyway, I was in another, yet another hospital having a mask made, and there was something about that therapeutic radiographer. Her name was Wendy, and she was so kind to me. This is like a few years after my treatment and she touched me because they were filming. I had a professional television crew filming me and she whispered, Julie, this must be so hard for you with what you went through the first time and I'm here. 
In other words, she related to me as a patient three years later, knowing that it wasn't real. In fact, I, I'd put on so much weight, my mask wasn't clicked down because I couldn't click it down anymore. But her empathy was communicated to me in 30 seconds. And after the filming, I said, Wendy, if you'd been my radiation therapist, it wouldn't have happened. I, I would have been okay. And I believe that to be true. And again, I want you to know I have formed good relationships with my former radiation therapist. Um, we have worked together on a educational booklet that's produced here in Australia for the head and neck cancer community. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Cancer Councils. We have them. They're like your Macmillan in the United Kingdom. And I actually worked with the head uh, radiation therapist to redraft the book. We got diagrams in the book. We got my story in the book. So I've been in a very constructive relationship with those people. Uh, and uh, what I guess I've taken away from that is kind professionals can fail to do important things if their superiors and their culture does not say this is how we do it around here. So around here we value pre-treatment education and kindness as a priority. And that needs to be the culture and it needs to be in the job descriptions, needs to be in the training. You're nodding, Joe. Tell me why you're nodding. Because I can see it sometimes with external pressures Sometimes you, you can see that. You can see how patient care does suffer as a result of maybe expectations or, you know, just from a strategic perspective of how some departments are run. Um, and that's across all of healthcare. Um, and it's sad because a lot of people who went into the profession did it to make a real difference to patients' lives. And it can really, it can make staff have really low morale but also we have lost staff through the pandemic because of the pressures that have been put on people. Yeah. And I think it's really obvious from that perspective how people who went in wanting to care for people now don't have that option because of time pressures. But you do have the option. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I do. I honestly do. But we all have responsibility for ourselves thank you julie for sharing your experience i think it highlights how important it is for therapeutic radiographers to consider how they can best support patients through the treatment so you know making sure that we do use the intercom when we can and um, that we do take the time to explain procedures as much as we possibly can and, and give the patient some kind of control over their own treatment i think is really really important so i think you know you sharing your experiences really highlights that and, and i think there are some more innovative ways to get past the time pressures so i know we're trying to get involved with tiktok a bit we're still learning but um some educational videos for patients students healthcare practitioners um even just for the roles within our profession or how to prepare for a radiotherapy appointment um, and it's something that i think hopefully we can pull together um, across the country and get a few more videos out to help and I think with patients who are a bit younger as well they might find that having an info like an informational leaflet or booklet isn't always as appropriate as something like a podcast or a TikTok video that might help a bit more. Julie can I ask how how are you coping now because obviously it's been years since your treatment you know how, how are you coping um, with long-term side effects? Jo, thanks heaps for asking that question because I've been so didactic towards you two. But, you know, thank you for listening. 
Look, I, th I think physically I am enormously uh, grateful because I think I'm in much better nick than many of my fellow head and neck cancer patients with whom I have contact. Um, so I have got a full set of teeth. I can afford dental care. Um, uh, and that's critical for the head and neck patient because as many of your listeners will know, radiation causes dry mouth, sometimes short-term, sometimes long-term. Most of us will never have the same quality of saliva and that is very damaging to the teeth. Uh, many uh, people who haven't had good dental care prior to diagnosis with a head and neck cancer have many extractions prior to treatment and so they can end treatment with very poor oral situations and I think you have big waiting lists for public access to dentistry in the United Kingdom. Uh, and in Australia, uh, uh, de the de dental care was not included in our public health system, which we call Medicare. And so for many head and neck patients, that's a huge issue. So I've spent about $20,000 in the nine years since I was treated uh, on uh, to have this, you know. And so I eat normal food and I can smile. And, and it's important for work and your social life. Um, but many people uh, struggle. I can eat normally. I can chew and swallow hard things. I lost my voice, but I worked for 18 months with a speech pathologist in the public system uh, on a weekly basis because uh, I'm what's called a professional voice user. I was still doing interviews and so on professionally then. So I can speak and I can eat and I've got teeth. And uh, I've seen a psychiatrist and a psychologist and my fear of recurrence has diminished dramatically get the occasional twinge uh, but my kind of cancer the longer you go without recurrence the less likely it is to get recurrence that's not true for all cancers so some people have to live with that fear of recurrence longer I think mentally I am pursuing I still don't cry I've had um, wetness around the eyes a few times I've been, my psychiatrist kept saying, are you sure it's not physical? The radiation didn't do something to your tear ducts. But no, the radiation was down here, not up there. So I did have that huge boo-hoo after my first treatment and I've lost crying, which is actually tough. Yeah, I'll just say that. It's, you realise crying's got a very important purpose because, of course, you know, my mother has died since I've had cancer, you know, Big changes happen and you want to have a big old cry and you can't. Um, but I, I, I'm by nature a resilient and optimistic person. That's my default. I did experience depression, uh, clinical depression for the first time and I am just now, nine years later, weaning myself off antidepressants and I had never had antidepressants prior to diagnosis. Um, and I'm wondering possibly the antidepressant may be playing a factor in the uh, repression of crying and that's why I'm going off them very slowly and as you would know you need to go off them very slowly not to have a uh, rebound depression. My partner gave me a small cavoodle called Bruno um, uh, two years out when I got depressed uh, uh, because she thought it would be good for me to look after a small dog and Bruno was actually with me here. I'd, can I show you? Yes, we we're all dog lovers on this Can you podcast. See he's there? Oh look, he's there. oh he's a Julie. tiny cavoodle. And seriously, I know some of you like cats. It's not something I understand. Um, and so I guess what I'd say, because obviously I've got that humour thing, and I'm very lucky to have humour. But um, I think my advocacy is obsessive. <laughs> if 
I'm honest. I think it's a coping mechanism. But um, I think to myself it's life positive. And I get a lot of emotional support from the many clinicians and fellow patients that I work with. You know, our time must be must be well and truly up, but I, I just want to thank you so much, you know, and I, I, just, I just want to say to people listening who are cancer patients or family, you know, reach out to your cancer team while you've got them. In Australia, we have you for five years. And there is a huge movement here in Australia, I'm sure it's happening there, for more survivorship care, long-term support. In Australia, we have a thing called the Head and Neck Cancer Australia, Head and Neck Cancer Australia, with a brilliant website, brilliant information, patients, family and clinicians, loads of videos. And uh, I'm active now in survivorship care because for head and neck cancer patients, our side effects can deteriorate and get worse over the years. So we need care long term and, and uh, they, people are starting to work closer with our general practitioners to, to inform them more, link them into the team so they can support us long term. So um, while my, I might be a bit obsessive, at oh, least it's got Julie. a smile on my face. <laughs> Oh, Julie, you're so amazing. And you can definitely tell you're a broadcaster because I don't think I've spoken this, <laughs> this amount on a podcast since we started. It's amazing. You could have just come on and honestly, I'm I'm in awe of you. I can sit I'll and listen to you it. for hours. This is my so, job. I can't cure cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and we should say for people listening, radiation, it doesn't always cure, but it can reduce pain and it can prolong life. I'm lucky to be alive, but radiation therapy is ever more precise. The duration of the treatment is ever shorter and it can reduce pain, reduce your tumors and give us longer life. So I've talked about some tough things, but I'm 100% glad. Julie, I think, I think to be honest, we could treat this as an interview. I think I'd like to offer you a place on our BSc undergraduate course. I think you'd make an amazing therapeutic radiographer. Oh, thank you. I, I <laughs> we do, do distance course. learning courses now. <laughs> <laughs> Naaman, what do you think? A final word from you. What, what have you got out of listening to me? You interview a lot of people. Um, I think it's been very eye-opening. The, I mean, it was honed into me from the start. You need to talk to a patient. You need to let them know before you touch them. You need to make sure you get down on their level to understand what they're going through. And I think where I trained, that interpersonal skill side, it was always there. If you didn't have it, people would make sure you worked hard on it. And with my role in treatment review, which isn't always the same everywhere in the world, um, I think interpersonal skills is more important than anything else that we do if I can't talk to a patient one-to-one -one, there's probably no point in me doing my job um, because I can't rush things in a one-to-one -one with a patient if they're crying I can't say oh well, I'm really sorry and then move on it's really important that I need to be quiet and listen and that's something you know through university through training through working through people even like Joe I've learned that and that's something I'm quite proud of for our profession that uh, yes could I say that because I know I know we've got to end, but can I just say, if you've got a big queue out there in the waiting room and you've got to get through them uh, and I'm crying, you won't be able to deal with me in real time. And that's why internal referral processes that you've got worked out. So you've got, you can, you can email the nurse and, and say, can you have a quick word with Julie? 
You know, there's a hospital called Princess Alexandra in Brisbane in Queensland. They've got a computer kiosk out in the waiting room that has got visual imagery the patient and family can look at about who everybody is and the bunker. But there's another one where you can do a distress thermometer. That's like a little quiz. And if you are at a certain level, it sends an automatic email to a member of their multidisciplinary team who'll follow you up. So I just say that because it puts too much pressure on the radiation therapist or the therapeutic. Uh, if I'm crying in treatment and you've got 20 patients outside, you've got to have a referral system. Oh, it's too, you, can't, you haven't got time for me. That's, that's, that's quite interesting. I think I'd be, hopefully people listening, you could kind of follow that up. That sounds amazing. Um, I know. I'll send you a video eh, and you can do a link on yes, some please. system. You're doing great here, Julie. You're going to have so many different things to forward on to people. Like, honestly, it's amazing. And if I send them to you, can you do Yeah, that? we will do. So with this podcast, when we post it, um, it'll sit there, all the links that you send us, so people will be able to reach out and have a have a look, which will be good. Well, look, I'll send you a little video of the model Linux at St. James in Leeds and the a little video about the kiosk in Princess Alexandra Hospital uh, Brisbane's waiting room outside the bunker. You remind me to do those. And if you're listening, have a look at the link. Absolutely. We definitely will. Um, just want to say, Julie, again, thank you so much. Um, I think we've learned so much of, about the psychosocial side of things ahead of neck patients today. And I'm hoping lots of people listening, especially sort of students and other healthcare professionals, it will be great for them to really listen and take things forward. Um, I can see you taking a photo of me, Julie. I'll try and pause. <laughs> Can you just wave? I'm actually taking a okay. video now. Can you wave? <laughs> Thank you very much to my friends in the United Kingdom for doing this wonderful podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we'll make sure we can forward it on to the Queen for you so she can see your mug as well. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good model of fortitude and with a tricky family. <laughs> <laughs> and that is definitely for another podcast, Julie. <laughs> well... Thank you to everyone for listening to Rad Chat. Um, so your hosts today have been Joe McNamara and Naaman Joe Canson. Um, so a huge thank you to our wonderful guest today, Julian McCrossan. Thank you um, very But much. if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, um, along with all the links to resource and literature that Julie's discussed with us. Um, to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form uh, linked with this podcast. So our next guest to feature uh, will be Sarah Newman, who will be discussing her experience of cervical cancer and her personal training business for cancer patients called Get Me Back. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Julie.